Judges 6, verses 1 through 24, hear now the word of God. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for the help of the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under Terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that, is, that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me, or do not part from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of, his, of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it, st it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. The Lord brought David through a lot before the Lord made David king. He protected David from harm. 
and even gave David a victory over Goliath against all odds. Saul was finally defeated by the Lord on Mount Gilboa by Philistine hands. After a period of mourning for the dead king and his son, David's dear friend Jonathan, David is anointed king over Judah and would soon become king over the north as well. And during David's early kingship, he defeated the Philistines. He brought back into Jerusalem the ark that they had taken And the Lord established that gracious covenant with him. The Lord was kind to David, confirming his kingship with some rapid-fire military victories. In turn, David was kind to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, by forever giving him a place to eat at his table. And after more victories, this time against Ammon and Syria, we say, there is no stopping this man, this David, Clearly, he is a man after God's own heart, and his reign is a glorious one. May it never end. But then, as the story goes, and you know it all too well, in the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David stayed behind. And that's when it happened. That's how 2 Samuel eleven two puts it. It happened. His lust, his adultery, his lies, his cover-up. It's murder. And why did it happen? Because he temporarily dropped his guard against his own sin. The last two Sundays, we have considered one event that has spanned two chapters, Judges 4 and 5. And we want to stay put in a Judges 4.24 world where it says they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. We want that to be the end of the story The king, the enemy king, conquered. We don't want to leave the comforts of a Judges 531 world with the enemies having perished and rest having been secured. We want that for ourselves, don't we? We want our enemies to be knocked down for good. Not to get up again, but to be KO'd. We yearn for the battle to be over and the times of joyful retirement to take us into eternity. But more of Judges was written. Judges doesn't end in 531. And more of our lives awaits us as well. Israel's mistake, as was David's, was letting down his guard. And so we should ask ourselves, shall we learn from their mistake? The Lord has equipped us as he did Israel, as he did David, and he has equipped us more than he has equipped Israel and David. Since we have the spirit in the fullness of time. And this divine equipment is sufficient for the times and seasons that we are in. A time for war. A season of battle after battle. The Lord faithfully gives his prophetic word and powerful presence to secure peace. As we come to Judges 6, we come again to an all-too-familiar story for Israel at this time, don't we? We see Israel is in trouble. And Israel's in trouble because Israel is in sin. Again, yes, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as they sought good in their own eyes. They sinned. They got stuck in their sin. The story is almost as old as time. Barring a couple chapters in Genesis 
But although ancient is their sin, ever abominable it remains. Sin might grow on us, dear ones, but it never grows on God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 711, the Lord feels indignation every day. The Lord is always angry against evil, always angry against the wicked who have not converted. Sin is never okay. It is never to be permitted. It is always damaging, always leading to damnation unless stopped in its dead tracks by grace. And so Israel is in sin. And what happens is Israel becomes in slavery. To prevent the end of Israel's sinful ways, the end of destruction, God sells them. Sells them for a time into slavery. He placed them under a seven-year oppression of slavery, and he did this for their good. Which, of course, they didn't think was for their good, but it was, as we will see soon enough. The Lord's disciplinary hand was upon them as the hand of Midian overpowered them. This liberated people was brought back into slavery for a time because of their slavish sins. And the result is also that Israel is in seclusion, in hiding. With the overpowering Midianite hand upon them, what can Israel do but hide? Clearly, the Midianites have overpowered them. Clearly, Israel is in defense mode and needs to run away. And so they make for themselves, as the text says, places of refuge in dens, in mountains, in caves. Anywhere they can get out of the reach of this hand of oppression. They're tucked in the corners of caves. They make foxes their friends as they bury themselves in dens. They make mountain goats their friends as well as they tucked in the corners of the mountains. Anywhere they can get out of the sight out of the hand, out of the reach of these Midianites. And we recognize that this is no way of living for the redeemed of God. God, who is their refuge, who is their shelter. After all, they have land to cultivate. They have fields to harvest. They have cities to build. They have worship to offer in the tabernacle. It was for freedom that the Lord set them free. But because of their sin, they're in hiding. And we see one other result is that they are in scarcity. Even the cultivated land and the crops were in danger of being stolen. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the people from the east would see Israel's abundance and force Israel into scarcity. They would gobble up the land, leaving Israel nothing on which to feed. Like swarms of locusts, these oppressors would devour the fruit of Israel's labor. Enslaved. In hiding, in want. This is truly a sorry state for Israel, isn't it? And all because Israel was in sin. Matthew Henry says quite succinctly sin dispirits men. Because of sin, we are brought low. Because of our own wickedness, we are humbled. And Israel does the right thing here by crying out to the Lord 
Verse 6 says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Do we see the destructive devolution of our own sins? Dear saints of the Lord. We think that by sinning, we will be free. We think that by giving in to our lust or our temptations, that we will then have that life of abundance, no longer shackled by some external force, some law. We can be the people that we want to be, free. We think that if we can say that gossipy word, just get it out, it tastes so good as it leaves the tongue. And as the one who hears that gossip morsel receives it, it tastes so good going down. But in reality, it's just another drop of death from the tongue of wickedness. We think that if we have just that extra glass of, of wine or, or alcohol, that that'll be what will really free us to engage in conversation. To, to forget about the cares of the world. When in reality, the Lord tells us to cast all our cares, all our anxieties on the Lord. And not to overpower them through senseless drinking. We think that if we can just get rid of that relationship, then finally we can live the Christian life. After all, it was a a toxic relationship. We don't, we don't need it anymore. Who cares if he's here, our brother? Who cares if she's our sister in Christ? We don't need him. We don't need her. We think that we can cheat the cheater, the government. We're firm with the taxation is theft mentality, and so we don't need to do our taxes with wisdom, with openness for God. Just cheat them. We think that we can be free if we just disobey our parents or those parents who don't know what we're going through. Those laws that they have given us, they, they harm us. They don't help us. Get out from under that parental guidance. We think that we can be free if we can just tell our boss off. He's had it coming for years after all. But all of that is just slavery. It's just operating in the realm of the world, the kingdom of darkness. And pray that that would dispirit you. Pray that that commitment to the world would never be satisfying. Our sins trouble us. If they didn't trouble you, you would not be a believer. But I guarantee you this, they do not trouble you as much as they should trouble you. We are too comfortable with our sinful comforts, with our own besetting sins, our own unrighteous ruts. Pray that they trouble you more and more. Pray that the Spirit would bring the trouble of your sin ever before your mind until you can repent, until you can confess, yes, Lord, I have sinned. Against you, I've sinned against my brother. I've sinned against my sister. Forgive me. Our present bondage to sinful habits troubles us. 
Pray. Oh, pray for Christ to set you free. Our seclusion from the world troubles us. We are out of the world, and yet at the same time, we long for the world. We long to have the honor, the success, the earthly pleasures that the world has. The wicked seem to prosper. Those who cut corners, they seem to have it all together, and sometimes we want that. Even at the cost of godliness. Pray that God would crush those longings for the world. Our scarcity in the world troubles us as well. But pray that you would live the abundant life of the spirit. And not the weakening life of the flesh. Just take another example. An all too familiar story. Not just for those in the world. But for the saints of God these days. The issue of pornography. And yes, it is over and over again going to be preached from this pulpit. It is a deadly sin. It wreaks havoc on the souls of our saints. The major sports, NFL, Major League Baseball, basketball, the revenue that they make, does not even compare to the revenue that is made on pornography. Which is startling when you think of how NFL, for instance, is so loved by people in America. Sadly, when Christian conferences come and and set up all these, they, they get all these rooms in hotels. The hotel has, the hotels that have seen revenue, they get an uptick. Of immoral media. And too many pastors have confessed anonymously to these surveys that are going out. That they have still looked at pornography. That they are looking at in the last week. It is deadly. Sin is alluring. It catches the eye. It glimmers with bright hope for comfort. For security. For peace. For control. But he who carries the heat of lustful passions close to his chest will soon find himself staring at the forbidden woman, taken in by her, and then dominated by her captivating figure. He will become her captive. He will find himself stuck to her web of lies and licentiousness. He then grows too comfortable with this darkened figure, and he prefers darkness to light. What will he do but hide from others who can help? What will he do but hide from God? His God. Our help of ages past. And as he hides, as he feeds on darkness, his body weakens and his spirit becomes corrupt. He is a shadow of a person. His rescue will take the light of Christ to turn back that dark spider. And the sword, the spirit, to strike the eight-legged monster that held him captive. Pick your poison. And all sin really is poison. And as you keep drawing from the wells of the world, you will find yourself in a pit of shame. Nothingness. Utter desperation. 
may, that, may at that point you say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer, of course, is Christ. He will deliver you from this body of death. Israel is in trouble. But the Lord doesn't leave Israel in trouble, in sin, in scarcity, in seclusion, in slavery. He doesn't leave Israel in that way. He gives Israel peace. The Lord graciously doesn't leave Israel in trouble, but he gives peace to Israel here, as we see. In verse 7, verse 8, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. The Lord acts, but not as he had done before. Before as in Judges. He didn't immediately raise a judge deliverer for this tearful and fearful Israel. What does he do? He sends them a preacher. He sends them a prophet. As is the case of all preachers, the name of this prophet was not necessary. We don't know who he was. Doesn't matter. What matters is he has a word from the Lord, not his own word. This is what Israel needs. This is what we need. The Lord sent this man to interpret for them their present miserable position. They're crying out to the Lord, and they want to know why this is happening. And the prophet is very clear. It's plain as day. Thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed my voice. That's why this is happening. Every church, dear saints, needs a man who fears the Lord more than he fears man. A man who will boldly, without apology, proclaim the word of God. I recently watched a clip of John MacArthur, who, by the way, has ministered in one church for over five decades. It's a long time. And people have often asked him, are you afraid of offending people? And he gave a twofold answer. First, I'm afraid of offending God by not preaching the word of God. But also, he says... I hope to offend every one of you, speaking to his congregation. He says, this is my goal to offend you all. And that sounds a bit harsh, but if you understand what he's getting at, it's, it's right, it's proper. Through the preached word, he is praying that people's sins would be exposed, that people would be offended by their sins so much that they would see the heinousness, the odiousness, the ruinous nature of their sin. When this proclamation sounds forth, this prophetic proclamation, may its vibrations shake away our sins. We don't need someone to tell us to keep doing what is right in our own eyes. We need someone to direct our eyes to the horrors of our sin on the one hand, and to the salvation of the Holy Christ on the other. That is what we need. And pray that you will always have men like that up here. Men who are bold, who are going to proclaim the word of God, no matter what. We need faithful preaching. And this faithful preaching, as we see in this text, speaks to God's persistent faithfulness. Any prophet, any preacher with a real word of the Lord will not hold up before the people the disobedience of the people only, but will also hold up the fidelity of God. God's commitment to his people, 
God's commitment to his covenant. And so that's what he says here. He speaks of a past faithfulness. The Lord reminds Israel that he rescued them out of Egypt. He says, I delivered you. All your people. They were enslaved. Do you not remember that? They cried out to the Lord. And they were rescued. And the Lord reminds them, I am the Lord your God. It's a present faithfulness. Not just, I, I got you out of Egypt, I got you out of a tight spot, and then I'm going to leave you to your own devices. No, I am the Lord your God. I'm not the God of the Egyptians. I've not covenanted with the Amalekites. I covenanted with you, Israel. I am your Lord. I am your God. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he says through his covenant. As a future faithfulness as well. Divine faithfulness in the past and in the present is a marker of his persistent future faithfulness. And in this way, he certainly differs from us, doesn't he? He's in a category of his own, being God, of course. And there's this great baseball movie out there with Kevin Costner. I'm not talking about Field of Dreams, which is also a great movie. But Kevin Costner plays an aged possibly retiring pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. And he is the starting pitcher for this game, which is their last game. They, they haven't made it into the postseason, but they can ruin the, um, the chances of the team they're playing. And so he's going to start the, the game, and he doesn't arrive on time, the time that the coach expects. So when he comes to the bullpen for practice, an hour late, the coach says, I was beginning to wonder if you weren't going to show. And Costner's character, Billy Chappell, says, Have I ever not showed? In the 19 years that I have played, have I ever not showed? That sounds like quite the track record, doesn't it? And the coach says, Well, that's true of everyone until the first time they don't show. And that illustrates, doesn't it, how quick we are to doubt one another, but also God. God, yeah, you, you saved us from, from the Egyptians. But surely you're not going to save us from the Midianites. If you, if you were, then this stuff wouldn't be happening. But God's past faithfulness points to his present faithfulness. And so to his future faithfulness, to his full fidelity. The God who doesn't change, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow remains faithful to his covenant with his people. Christ has secured that with his blood. Though he put us through trials, he will never leave us. Though he allow us to experience the effects of our sin for a time, he will never forsake us. Though Satan should breathe down our necks, whispering in our ears, you're a dead man, the Lord is closer still saying, no, you are alive in Christ. Though our God should slay us, it is he at the same time who will take us to himself in his heavenly presence. How precious is the death of his saints. And the Lord here takes his heavenly presence to Gideon. In verse 12 we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. 
And so what does the Lord do here? But he assures Gideon of his presence. In order to prepare Gideon for this battle of his lifetime, the Lord assures the man of his presence. This assurance is all anyone would ever need as he is anticipating darkness, as he is anticipating a battle, an enemy that so far is overpowering. To have the faithful God walking with you in this fallen world is enough. Or at least it ought to be enough. It wasn't enough for Gideon here. And it won't be enough for him later on in Judges 6 as well. But it is nevertheless enough. And you see God's grace when he affirms Gideon's fitness. Do you see his gracious words here? Oh, mighty man of valor. Insert laughter now. O oh, mighty man of valor. It is quite the title given to the one who is in hiding, who is beating out the wheat in the winepress. This, this title, O oh, mighty man of valor, is given to 37, those 37 valiant men who risked their lives for David, who went behind enemy lines and got just a cup of water for David as he longed for the water. What has Gideon done so far? Nothing. He's hiding out. But here, God, who knows that as God is with Gideon, he will surely be mighty. God knows that he will go, that Gideon will go in the strength of the Lord. And so he's preparing Gideon for battle. In the spirit of Barak, we direct our words to the Lord. We say, if you, O Lord, will, will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, Lord... I will not go. I cannot go. I cannot fight the world, the flesh, and the devil without you. I must have you, God, with me every step of the way, all around me, in front of me, behind me, at my sides. I need you, O oh good shepherd of the sheep, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with me. For then I will fear no evil. Without God, we are the conquered. We are overcome by our sin. Overcome by the world, overcome by the evil one. But with God, we are more than overcomers, more than conquerors. With the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering us, our flesh loses its strength. The world, its luster. And Satan, his terror. And so we can enter the dark rooms of the world because Christ, our light, is with us. But the presence of God here should suffice for us, but it does not. Too often we're like Gideon here. Our scary surroundings, the present affliction, move our eyes off of the good shepherd who walks with us. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. It sure doesn't seem like the Lord is with us, Gideon says. Well, appearances can be deceiving. God patiently allows Gideon here to engage him in a back and forth in which Gideon registers his confusion and even some objection. Sure doesn't look like it. And surely Gideon's confusion resonates with our minds, doesn't it? If God is with us, why has all this evil happening to us? Where is God in my life? 
Where is God in the world? Where is God in the church? Surely if God were with us, we would not be undergoing whatever we're undergoing. Persecution. Pain of any variety. Loss of standing. Reputation. Surely, if the Lord were with us, we wouldn't have, in our own denomination, wives of elders preaching. Surely we wouldn't have this stuff, right? Surely we wouldn't have people enslaved to their sin. We're not thinking big picture. And God says to Gideon, We'll do something about it. Do not I send you? He says, go in this might. Save Israel. Go ahead, almighty man of valor. Rescue the people from the hand of the Midianites. You're up. You're the next judge. And Gideon says, me? Mighty? Yeah, I don't think so. I am the least in my family which is the least in my clan, which is the least in our tribe, which is the least of the tribes. I am the lowest of the low. Well, good. That's exactly where the Lord will have you. Gideon needs a sign, again, indicating his weakness. I need some more assurance, God. As if the word from the prophet hadn't been enough. As if the appearance of the Lord hadn't been enough. I need more. And God doesn't cut him off. He is gracious to Gideon. Fine. And so there's this sacrifice. The young goat and unloving cakes. He needs a sign. The Lord graciously grants the sign. Our own inadequacies are meant by God to drive us to the Lord. Dear children of God, the book of Judges is not as bleak as we tend to think that it is. I'm not sugarcoating the sin. By any stretch of the imagination, there is an abundance of sin in the book of Judges. And we have not even read the worst of it. But do you see how the grace of God time and again pins sin down? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid, Paul says. But if we should sin, will grace abound? Yes. God permit, may it always be. And it will always be because of what Christ has done. If there is hope for Israel back then, then surely there is hope for us now. And as we humbly grow in the deeper understanding of our frailty, the grace of God looks like it has never looked before. The new mercies each morning look brighter, ever brighter. The forgiveness of God becomes ever sweeter. And ever present in our minds. And always being proclaimed from our mouths. Because we know what it is to be forgiven. We know what it is to be a sinner. It is okay, dear ones. It is more than okay. It is a gift from God when you realize that you are the chief of sinners. That you are the lowest of the low. That you are the most insignificant of them all. That's okay. And that's a good place to be. Because then you're in the place of a humble You are seeing yourself as God sees you. Because you really are that low. And then you can become 
mighty man, a mighty woman of valor, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then you can be used. Then you can be used by God. Well, this power from the presence of God must be established by God himself. Verse 24 says, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. I love the way Matthew Henry puts it, summarizing his words here. Before Gideon goes to war with Midian, he is at peace with God. He's going to do battle. He's going to wage war against the world. But first, he must be at peace with the Lord. And that's what we have here. The Lord graciously allows Gideon to prepare this sacrifice to him. Fire springs up from the rock on which the offering lies consuming it all. Then the Lord, what does he do? He vanishes in a glory cloud, astounding Gideon, who just saw God face to face. And Gideon knew what everyone in that day knew. If you had an encounter with the Lord, you fear for your life. You say with Isaiah, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You say with Peter, the face of Christ, Turn away from me, a sinner. Do not look at me. In myself, I am too abominable in your holy sight. But he isn't reduced to ashes here. As the sacrifice was. The Lord doesn't cause Gideon's flesh and spirit to vanish. No, he allows, out of worshipful gratitude for his life being preserved, he allows this altar to be built. The Lord is peace. Not simply that the Lord issues peace. The Lord is peace. This isn't an absence of strife, though that's part of peace. It is the incorporation of a full friendship. With God. And this peace is both unconditional and conditional. This peace was unconditional for Gideon. When you look at this story, the Lord does not consider Gideon's weak faith. He doesn't consider Gideon's skepticism. He doesn't consider Gideon's lowly lineage to stop him from making peace with the man. Those are not barriers to the peacemaking efforts of the Lord. Though they are barriers to Gideon, they are not to the Lord. The Lord is insistent that he will make peace. That he will show this man that he is peace. And so it was unconditional for him. But it wasn't unconditional for God. The Lord granted this peace on the condition that the angel of the Lord accept it. And who is this angel of the Lord? We've already seen it, haven't we? This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God who will come to flesh, even Jesus Christ himself. The Lord is peace for us because Jesus Christ is our peace. That's what we read in Ephesians 2. He is our peace. He preaches peace. He makes peace because in his person, he is peace. 
He is the one. If we were to have any kind of peace or friendship with God, he is the one to go to. In his person, in his work, in his ministry, with his spirit, he is peace. Not only did Christ accept this sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. As priest, as high priest in John 17, he prays to the Father. He, he prays for peace. He prays for unity. He prays for the salvation of all those that the Father will give him. And then he consecrates himself. He sets himself apart, not only as the priest, but as the lamb, as the sacrifice himself. All praise be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. You are right with God because the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is your peace. You can wage war against the evil of your flesh, the world, and the devil because Christ is your peace. You need not fear. The Lord is with you. The Lord is peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you have shown us abundance of salvation through your word here. We thank you for it. We thank you for the peace that we have because we have Christ, because Christ, by his grace, came to us. Live that life that we could not live, failed to live, died for us, thereby destroying that hostility that existed between us and you and between us and one, one another. And Lord, we want to see this peace permeate all of our lives. We want to see you use us in every area of our lives for your glory. And so we pray that your spirit would continue to do his work in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.